sixth sense whenever we summon the Craig bot. Yeah, I, I always try to specify that we're summoning the Craig bot because it's just confusing. Anyway, welcome everyone to our discussion on To Have Done With The Judgment Of God by Antonin Artaud, uh, a, an interesting text in its own right, originally a radio play, uh, but for the purposes of our interest in Deleuze and Guattari, it was also the basis for, or well, it was the source of the phrase body without organs. We can judge for ourselves how closely their concept cleaves to his use of the phrase. Uh, so I wanted to start out by just, uh, asking if anyone has any big thoughts on the text ever after having read it, just overall impression. Big question, I know. Go ahead, Shinny. Oh, well, I was going to say if you could ask the question again, I kind of like blanked for a second. Uh, I, I was just asking uh, for overall first impressions, big thoughts, just um, framing ideas. Uh, uh, I wrote some stuff down. Um, I can pull that up. Uh, One of my biggest questions <clears throat> while reading the text, let's say, was uh, actually whether the voice of the speaker changes with the changing sections. And this is something that interested me while reading the text, right? And um, I would like to to explore the function of the speaker in this radio play, right? How this uh, function of speech works. Does it shift or not? And um, I know many many of my uh, comments will be directed in, in that um, in that vein of thought. Yeah, that that is an interesting question because, like, certainly at the very last section, it's pretty clearly a dialogue, but it's not necessarily clear how continuous the voice is up to that point. Right, and whether whether it's um, a real person or a kind of. Uh, schizophrenic voice right talking is uh, one more question in the dialogue mm -hmm. um, directly yeah I, I think some of his comments uh, especially at the end mm -hmm. um, seem to be drawing upon his personal experiences as Antonin Artaud uh, right he addresses himself right uh, mm -hmm. yeah yeah he addresses himself and then he he seems to hint at his experiences with uh, psychiatric treatment right at least yeah. that's my interpretation uh, I feel that that was uh, a big pillar of his uh, of his thought and uh, of his writing process, right? I think that <clears throat> a bit of history from what I read about him, he was uh, prescribed to multiple types of drugs throughout his life. Uh, and I think from a very young age, right, his parents got him involved in some certain medication. I'm not sure what it is, but he was uh, prescribed to something uh, right towards the end. So he was definitely under a strong influence of this uh, psychiatric machine, let's call it. Right? Probably should call it a machine, shouldn't we? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, so let's see. Um, yeah, it, um, it says... Yeah? I was going to say, I think I, I do have another kind of like question that I don't know if it really applies to the the fall of the play, 
but um, it is it was one that I circled because it felt it was one that I was kind of having trouble with, which is um, what is the significance of shit in the play? Like, oh yeah, that that's he, one of my favorite sections. Yeah, he se- he seems to talk about it in this way where it's it's tied up with being, but I kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, I, I I think that's a very good question. We, I think um, we'll want to go through the tech in order and maybe get to that when we get to that section. Yeah, I, right. I agree. That's a good idea. But let's uh, bear it in mind as as we uh, get to it. Um, yeah. So just looking at the overall structure of the text, there's it starts with this story about the seminal test in America, and mm-hmm. this kind of um, this critique of American militarism, which then segues in a way that I don't fully understand, and I'll want to ask about that, into this uh, indigenous American ritual, which he might have made up or might not, I don't know, Um, having to do with imagery of sun, uh, the sun and a lot of crosses. And then he goes into this monologue, this, um, or maybe dialogue, we'll have to answer Andrew's question, having to do with shit, and that's what Shiny was talking about. And then finally, after relating shit to being and bone and meat and iron and fire, <laughs> he goes into that um, that question and answer section where he's interviewing mm-hmm. himself about the purposes and is kind of making sense at first, but then increasingly goes back into his raving and even accuses himself of raving. Right, and... Um... When you say dialogue, do you think the conclusion part or something else? I, I, I'm talking about the conclusion part where he talks about the purpose. Right. Okay. And, and right then, at the very, very end, we will finally get uh, body without organs as, as a phrase. Um, right. So but, I, uh, how do we want to approach this? Do we want to just read the text? Um, I mean, personally, I don't think so. But um, okay. if you guys are in favor, maybe we can do it. Are, are there uh, any are there any themes that stuck out to anybody? Not just um, right. So we got the symbol of shit, um, and the the theme maybe of um, shifting speech. But is there anything significant that stuck out to you? Maybe like movement. Mm, I mean, this doesn't answer your question because it didn't really stuck out for me. But uh, stuck out for me, but. My question is, what is the relation of uh, sperm to this whole talk about uh, American militarism, right? Because I think I, I kind of get the critique part. I mean, it makes uh, more sense than anything else, actually. But uh, where does sperm come in in this uh, talk about American military, etc.? Yeah, yeah, the um. So the, the first section, they, he's kind of speaking very clearly about these two concepts, but the relation between them is, is very strange. And, and the only place I can see it really explicitly linked is, uh, let's see, must give way finally and shamefully before all victorious substitute products in which the sperm of all artificial insemination factories will make a miracle in order to produce armies and battleships. So this... Right. This um, seminal extraction seems to somehow enable the production of uh, 
of military might. Um, I, right. I don't think this is in a literal productive way. I, I don't think they're manufacturing that, things out of semen. How I read it is uh, actually you mentioning this uh, this uh, specific passage. I think it has a lot to do with the relationship of uh, you know the the biological function of sperm and how it you know, produces other men, right, or other people, which. Uh, and then later go on to produce armies and battleships. Maybe this is the kind of uh, symbolism. Yeah, I, it wouldn't be a symbolism in that case, actually. But, I, I think, um, I think um, there are kind of hints in the text, and and maybe his biography bears this out. I haven't read it, indicating that he's been subjected to psychoanalysis, like subjected to discourses about his life that place the genitals at the center of interpreting everything. Um, right, and this is the Freudian doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, um, I don't know, for, for me, the most plausible way to interpret that, that seminal thing is that uh, it is in connection to uh, God later in the text, where, where mm-hmm. God is related to the organs and in particular the imposition of the organs. So this is not so much semen as kind of the phallic symbolic, symbolic order. order. Right, but rather, <laughs> um, if I could jump in too, uh, yeah, one, yeah. Th- one thing I think is that's important to keep in mind with uh, this text, um, and, and kind of the larger theme that I, I really drew out of it, and um, actually might venture to try and write out more about is the idea of being is changing, right? So it's not just becoming, it's that being is this kind of constant movement, this constant shifting, this constant um, transforming. And so when we right. talk about these symbols, I think it's very important, um, just like Mal was beginning to do, to anchor that with the tats, because I think semen, just like shit, shifts in its symbolic relationship. Yeah. But um, in direct answer to the question, one thing that caught me is that they're not taking the, the the semen of adults, they're taking the semen of children, right? So it's, to me, it's kind of like you have an extraction of sperm from the youth, like the, the sort of like a creative gene taken from the body. And uh, that is sort of revitalized artificially, recreated, if you will, in order to foster production. Yeah, and I, I think the significance of them being children um, would link it to psychosexual development. Like this is formative. It, it, it's it's explicitly linked to schools, which again are a formative institution. Mm-hmm, right. No, I yeah. think that Artel reads it as a kind of compulsory process, right, in the development of uh, children. Uh, Shiny said something in chat. Sorry, can't talk at the moment, but I think the metaphor of manufacturing soldiers is interesting in that it conjures images of the factory, a continued process. It begins with the literal physical production of a person's sperm and continues the psychosexual impositions that take the unformed, that take that unformed material and transform it into soldier. It's interesting, too, to take that 
in the sense that the soldier is kind of like not a natural soldier, right? The 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 symbol is very much connected with this notion of like a fake nature, um, a a sort of um, uh, right. We have artificial insemination. We have sperm from children going into um, uh, factories and that in order to foster production. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that phrase you used, uh, fake nature. Um, I, I think that's going to connect closely with the, the talk of God later in the text, the judgment of God that he wants to do away with. Um, and I think it, it actually also uh, will illuminate uh, chapter two of Anti-Oedipus that we're about to get into, where they start talking about illegitimate uses of the three syntheses that they've sketched out, where they become kind of these repressive mechanisms. Yeah, and, and to that point, and bouncing off what was said about formation, um, it's interesting, is you, you do have the sense of formation, right, formative institutions, mm-hmm. but you also have the sense of taking the formative away from the forming. Uh, that is to say, right, when I think of sperm, I think of that as uh, the, sort of the, 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 an essential part of creating uh, a person. Right, an essential part of forming a zygote, but that's that's um, abstracted, to use the capitalist term. Mm-hmm. And and something about this whole uh, seminal test that he describes does feel very capitalist, right? It's I I don't get the impression that a whole biography is written on the sides of these jars. They are jars of undifferentiated sperm. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, and it's interesting too because you can see this is very much, even though eroticism and, and sexuality is a, a theme throughout this play, uh, there are no women. That's true. The closest yeah. thing we have to a womb is the factory. Uh, th- I would say the closest thing we have to a womb is the is the earth, in the ritual that he describes. He talks about the cleft earth. Right, and this may be the time you guys uh, mentioning capitalism, right? And maybe a good time to to go into the next section because I, I feel that um, right with this uh, obvious critique of American militarism and the American education system, in a way, right, uh, a kind of conjuring of the non-state, uh, the the non-state. Uh, Right, uh, structure, right, which is uh, there with these indigenous tribes is useful, right? So, what do you think about it? Is this a direct contrast, an immediate contrast, or something else? Yeah, the, the segue here is, is very strange, strange enough that I, I would like to read it aloud just so we can have it fresh in mind. Um, I've seen machines fighting a lot, but only infinitely far behind them have I seen the men who directed them. Rather than people who feed their horses, cattle, and mules the last tons of real morphine they have left, place it substitutes made of smoke, I prefer the people who eat off the bare earth the delirium from which they were born. I mean the Tarahumara, eating peyote off the ground while they are born, and who kill the sun to establish the kingdom of black, and who smash the cross so that the spaces of spaces can never again meet and cross. And then he goes into describing the 
So he, he prefers the people who eat off the bare earth, the delirium from which they are born. And this honestly sounds, and, and obviously I'm reading a later work backwards into an earlier work here, but uh, this sounds so much like what Deleuze and Guattari are trying to do, trying to describe. Um, they're, they're, they've invoked the word delirium. We've, in the, in the main session, spent a lot of time talking about delirium. And um, they seem to kind of celebrate these natural processes that they've uh, sketched out in chapter one. Um, and they distinguish these against the illegitimate uses of the syntheses that they will um, be critiquing in later chapters. So I, I think we could read Artaud as doing something kind of similar here, um, where the, the Tutugori, um, the, the Tarahumara, who I'm not actually sure what, which of those, I suppose Tarahumara is the people uh, who live a truer truth, a, uh, a realer nature, as opposed uh, to the highly artificial nature of American soldier children. They, they eat a truer nature. They do. I was going to say, um, I made a note here about... Uh, I made a note here about, um, and, and it becomes even more explicit, I think, later in his, in the interview session, um, Arto's sort of, you know, anti-colonial critique here. And obviously, especially towards the beginning, it's kind of framed in this very noble, savage, kind of idealized way. But um, there is a sort of, like, tinge of, in addition to the anti-imperialist, you know, anti-war, whatever, and even anti-capitalist kind of, thing that's being presented here and i think one could even say ecological kind of perspective in the way that he talks about the earth and kind of factories and such um and there's kind of this this critique of of all these different uh kind of forces of domination i guess you could call them um and uh it's 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 interesting that it's pursued in that in that way i would say and and keeping with the just going back just for for uh like a second for the um the capitalist thing because we're talking about how the whole description of this of the whole sperm extraction is very capitalist i think it's interesting how and i think i heard this in one of the um voice presentations there's an emphasis on um the when he says that there's a small amount of sperm that's extracted it's this idea that it's like you know literally like a surplus an extraction of surplus from these from these children for for future production you know a conversion of living to dead labor etc so yeah yeah i, I think yeah, you had I a think good point there too and, and we see like the children are are also or rather the sperm that's to be created is to create soldiers and part of being a soldier is it's stolen um american products mm -hmm. right which is in direct contrast to eating peyote off the ground um it's also interesting oh. you, you mentioned um kind of like a noble savage image it's weird because i i see him as saying that they have a whole civilization that to me, I, I think he's saying can't really be understood as savage. It's it, it's oddly enough civil, even though we have killing the sun, um, black knight kingdoms, eating cactuses off the ground to, 
to perform rituals. Yeah, that's actually a good point. He does he does say that um, that they were quote unquote more civilized even than than those today. Although I think you know even, even I would say probably in those discourses of those noble savage discourses that that type of terminology can be used without necessarily escaping the idea. But I do, I do think that's a good point to raise that he does mention that there are in fact civilizations themselves. Yeah, it it. It does seem that his kind of praise of them is substantive. It's not just idealized, fantasized thing. He's describing something very um, close to the beating heart of life, right? He, he's describing something that he feels he can connect to personally. Yeah, I, I think you heard it make an excellent point by saying that it's something he can connect to personally because um, I'm sure you guys are aware, right? Peyote is something you um, you ingest in order to to ingest mescaline, which can actually also induce vomiting since uh, in, ingurgitation is such a, a theme in the, uh, throughout this. But it's interesting that he finds the people who go on these sort of um, these rituals and participate in these kind of larger than life or rather larger than uh, what, what we as the audience are used to in terms of life productions, right? These theatrical acts of ritual uh, so I have a sort of kinship with them. So I just found a, um, a little snippet of biography that is relevant here. Artaud received a grant to travel to Mexico, where he met his first uh, Parisian friend, painter Federico Cantu. Uh, he also studied and lived with the Tarahumaran people and experimented with peyote, recording his experiences, which were later released in a volume called Voyage to the Land of the Tarahumara. The content of this work closely resembles the poems of his later days, concerned primarily with the supernatural. Artaud also recorded his horrific withdrawal from heroin upon entering the land of Tarahumaras. Having deserted his last supply of the drug at a mountainside, he literally had to be hoisted onto his horse and soon resembled, in his words, giant inflamed gum. So he, I, this may actually be to some extent, at least an experiential extent, um, a, a recounting of actual experiences he's had just fantasizing about some distant place. I think also, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what the significance of this is to the text per se, but it prob there probably is something to be said for the fact, because I, I ended up having to look up, you know, the Tarahumara group, and the first thing I saw when I looked it up, you know, just the first page of Google is uh, they're apparently super well-known for being incredible distance runners. They... Hmm. they they're they're supposedly just like you know as a people are, are incredibly good at, at distance running and that's what they're famous for you see all these like videos about them and it's i i'm not sure wh wh what necessarily the significance of, of that is to, to what's being discussed but i feel like it's definitely a point that that should be raised because there's probably something in there i don't know yeah that that kind of uh sits in interesting contrast with them attacking, maybe killing a horse. Well, and also it places them 
in relation to a horse, right? Distance running is very much what um, we use horses for in a more productive sense. So then let's look at the, uh, the content of the right of the black sun, see if we pull any, uh, any interpretations out of it. Very abstract, very, well, it's a ritual. Before we, we jump into the ritual, um, I'd like to pose a question. Uh, why is it so, why does he have this ritual right here? Right, uh, why is he, why is it important that we go through this ritual with him? Well, I think all of his plays could be understood in a sense as ritual. I mean, one of his core ideas was cruelty, the theater of cruelty, that uh, theater doesn't um, convey a story necessarily, or it can, but that's secondary to its main effect that he wants to talk about, which, to, um, which is to kind of shock people into raw experience, to, to make them feel and experience things. To have them suffer with intensity. Yeah, and, and the suffering, um, his cruelty is not necessarily negative. Um, one, can, one can suffer joy, right? And it, it's interesting, right, because we're talking about suffering, um, right? We might say we're going to suffer through this, this dance, but that's after listening to a description of uh, children having their sperm extracted and gossip in the latrines that I believe a prison. So this is a very different notion of suffering that we're seeing right here. So um, in the context of the, the, the text, what is it that he wants us to, wh wh why, why go through the suffering after talking about um, the American, uh, shall we say, zeitgeist? Well, so he prefers the people who eat peyote off the ground. Um, I th think he might be trying to just show us some fragment of experience so, so that we might possibly experience some inkling of it ourselves. I think so. It's definitely something to keep in mind as we, we venture to, to read the, 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 the Rite of the Black Sun or the Dance of the Tudor Girl. So the, the basic structure of the ritual involves seven people and a horse, a bunch of crosses, and what appears to be a pit in the ground. And uh, the, they attack the horse. Uh, towards the end, the horse of bleeding meat rears and prances without a stop on the crest of his rock. Um, I don't how to, I don't even know how to talk about this section. I I guess the the first thing I to look at would be kind of the the themes, the symbols. There's the sun, the the men, or the several suns, the men, the earth, crosses, and the horse. The horse being kind of the way he talks about the relationship between the horse and, and the man. There's a lot of um, inflation between the. Also a lot of talk of flesh, but no talk of organs. And Jack and I were talking a little bit about that before the call started, how we're not actually sure where the man who 
holds up the uh, the enormous horseshoe at the end. I'm not actually sure where he got cut. If I could make a point too, when he talks later on in the play about um, hunger and appetite, right? Someone experiencing uh, eating without the hunger and the appetite. The seventh man for whom there's no cross or sun, uh, rather who only has the horse, but the horse is the sun. Uh, that seems to kind of parallel that point. And so when we think about organs, he makes the point that organs are useless. So for this, 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 um, this ritual, right? We don't need organs because they're yeah. not going to help us. Their spleen yeah, yeah. is not going to aid us. Glad. And to uh, once, and I'm going to keep doing this throughout the entire session to read DNG back into this. Um, this uh, confusion between the the seventh man and the horse. Uh, read the actual text. Uh, a seventh man who is the sun in the raw, dressed in black and in red flesh, but. This seventh man is a horse, a horse with a man leading him, but it is a horse who is the sun and not the man. Um, there seem to be a lot of inclusive disjunctions going on there. Um, and, and this, I, I think we could understand as a kind of deterritorialization where the boundaries between these three concepts are not necessarily ones to be uh, fixed in place. Could you also kind of see it the way we've talked about the you know, all the discussions of the subject and the body without organs, like it's, I, I, I took time to kind of step away and just read through the text. So I haven't had the benefit of hearing it uh, performed, but just reading when I read it the first time, that section kind of struck me like it's almost narrating similar to what we've described about the process of the unconscious, like coming into the sense of being Oedipalized, you know, that's really reading D and G into it. But when he says the, the seventh man is a horse, a horse with a man leading him, but it's the horse who's the sun and not the man. Like the whole ritual is about the sun. The sun is kind of like the head of this ritual, the subject of the ritual. But it's not, you know, the man thinks he's the, the sun, but it's not actually that. There's a there's this thing that has been created in between the experience of being a man and this thing that runs the whole ritual or makes it possible, the sun, which is this whatever the horse is. I don't know, that, that's kind of, it's a lazy rendering maybe, but that's kind of what I thought of. It's interesting that we see the sun here after um, Artaud making the the ideal statement that the sun um, be killed, that he'd prefer to be around a man who would kill the sun and usher in a kingdom of darkness. Yeah, in fact, right before this section, he was explicit about two goals of this ritual, um, and those are kill the sun to establish the kingdom of Black Knight and mash the cross so that the Spaces of spaces can never again meet and cross. I have no idea what either one of those, I'll be honest, I can't make sense of them. Well, part of it is it's a play on words. So, right, when we're talking about a cross, he's explicitly um, trying to conjure up an image of uh, the Christian uh, mythos, right? Jesus on the cross, take up thy cross. Um, when you think about Christianity, it, it almost doesn't work without the cross. Yeah. But we're also seeing cross in terms of intersection. And so, uh, you know, last night we joked that the spaces of spaces is kind of like the territory of territory. But I think what he's trying to do here is say that 
in a, in a metaspatial sense, there's no intersection. Um, if you, if you want to think of it kind of in terms of flow, there's not going to be this constant crossing or this constant sacrificing and rebirthing. Uh, to me, it seems to say that it's, it's going to be sort of set into place where we can kind of dance and that's going to be the, the movement we're going to move rather than the space is moving. Hmm. Lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah. So it, interesting. The um, the very very end of the ritual, right before we get into the the pursuit of fecality, has its own title, and that is the abolition of the cross. What comes under that heading? is when they have stopped turning, they uproot the crosses of the earth, and the naked man on the horse holds up an enormous horseshoe, which he has dipped in a gash of his blood. Which... Towards the, towards the very, very end, in the question and answer section, uh, he talks about... Um, but talks about eradicating God by means of blood until blood flows. I, I think that's essentially the operation he's describing. So I, I think you're right that the cross is, in a sense, God. And we know from elsewhere in the text that God is, in a sense, the organ. And uh, to kind of, once again, bring in Deleuze and Guattari to link those together, organs would be nothing other than territoriality on the body. So that would be a very spatial concept. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And, and again, I think it's a comment about the territory of territory, the spaces of spaces. Right, mm. we're we're going to have this, um, this sort of stage to dance upon, without um, without sort of demarcating it. Right, in in a similar way, like the Earth doesn't have organs, not so too won't we. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. Um, Shiny dropped an interesting quote from Leon Trotsky chat. Comrades, we love the sun that gives us light, but if the rich and the aggressors which try to monopolize the sun, we should say, let the sun be extinguished. Let darkness reign. Eternal night. Um, I, I think that might actually shed some light on what he's trying to do here. He doesn't necessarily hate the sun, but he, he might hate that single source of truth. Yeah, I, I always found that interesting, especially because there's also a parallel. Obviously, you see, I, I, I can't help but when I read this, this text, I, I always think of parallels to Bataille. And um, there, there's, there's definitely the, that idea of, of killing the sun in Bataille as well. Um, and of course, also, the, to get, as we'll get to later, the, the focus on shit. So. Uh, I felt that, that that quote needed to be dropped uh, to, to kind of establish the, uh, the different nodes of, of sun killing throughout, uh, <clears throat> throughout 20th century thought, I guess one could say. Take that, Plato. Yeah, and it, I don't know if this is at all related to that. It actually reminds me of um, the Nazis had their own notion of sun killing, or more precisely, uh, the black sun. This idea, it was 
part of the like mystical wing of the Nazis. Um, and it, it was this idea that even when the, 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 the bright sun in the sky is not shining, the, the black sun inside is shining. So it's a, yeah, it's a common the, theme. There's, 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 uh, that's, and the symbol that the Nazis use of the black sun is now used by plenty of the modern kind of neo-Nazi groups as like the pan-European, uh, symbol. And I've read actually that certain, I don't know if this, I don't think this was the Nazis themselves, but, uh, some modern day esoteric sort of neo-Nazi groups, um, who are into like UFO religion and things like that. They actually say that the black sun is, uh, is like a certain star. I don't, I don't know which star it is, but it's in some distant constellation. And it's, it's the source of the Aryan race. Yeah. So common, common concepts that have been used in a lot of ways. I don't know if this one directly relates, but I thought it meant. Um, do we want to get into the pursuit of fecality now? Uh, before we do, could I call attention to that that sort of uh, prescript at the beginning? Yeah, the the one that uh, with the nonsense on each side. Yeah, with a sort of like broken language arranged around a, a language we're familiar with. Um, I think this this really helps with interpreting the text. What he's doing here this kind of uh, juxtaposition between a, a sort of fragmented language um, and a language we understand, both being um, in relation to each other, but also being sort of indifference to each other. Um, but I, I'd like to pose the question, uh, what does it mean that our toe is... Um, is beginning with the statement that everything must be arranged to a hair in a fulminating order. Why is that important? Yeah, what, what is the fulminating order? That's, that's... As I understand, fulminating is like when you have a sort of... Um, powerful protest. Yeah, I, I, um, I wasn't particularly familiar with the word. The dictionary defines, gives it four definitions. To make a verbal attack, issue as a denunciation, to thunder or make a loud noise, strike with lightning, cause to explode. That last one being rare. So what does it mean that we're trying to arrange things in an order that fulminates? actively I just, I just go ahead go ahead it raises the question of of what is what is being fulminated right these are all kind of directional meaning um but for it to just be generally attacking generally denouncing generally thunderous i suppose thunderous a sense that doesn't need a an object uh, I, I just looked up, uh, apparently, in, in chemistry, uh, fulminate salts are friction-sensitive explosives. And uh, there's the uh, earlier, or later in the text, there's when he talks about uh, exploding outward at the, his body being touched. <clears throat> there's a, a parallel there, I think. 
So I think maybe something with the, the idea of the violence that you would have to do to the experience, to being in order to sort of hammer out a body. On uh, to, to make, because there's even a part where he says two paths. When he was talking about man sort of had the, when, they, when he stopped the idea of the world and he says two paths were open, that of the infinite without and the infinitesimal within. And man chooses the infinitesimal within and there's all these squeezing processes and God himself is squeezing sort of like being a, a man into being with the spleen and the tongue and the anus and all these different things that like there's something again, again if, I, if I'm thinking retroactively I can see that why Deleuze and Qatari would find some use in this text because there's a lot of the you know that the process isn't just a natural kind of harmonious process it's quite a disjunctive and violent one. No, that, that's really plausible to me. So it, it is the order itself, which is in, imposed through an act of fulmination, fulminating what, um, what Deleuze and Guattari would call the body without organs, and, and maybe Artaud would agree with their use of that phrase. Let me make another point. Does it bother anyone that the only sensible aspect in that, that prescript is the part that's familiar to you? Does it bother anyone that it's it's in between all this, all these other markings? Yeah, I was definitely kind of, I was looking at all the the uh, the kind of broken, fragmented language, and I was, it almost it was almost kind of frustrating to the sight of it. Was like, you know, I'm trying to read this text, and I, I there's a part of it that I cannot understand. You know, even like. You know, it's one thing to read something in a text and think, "Oh, I don't really get this." You could kind of put it to thought, or you could look some, you could look up a term that you hadn't been familiar with before. But this is this is not any of that. This is, um, you know, something that's unknowable, uh, and I think that's. Uh, there was something I was going to say, and I'm, I'm forgetting it now. But so one of uh, Artaud's um, ideas that that he used in his plays, and we see it in a couple places, and this one is the insufficiency of language, so I'm just going to read from Wikipedia. Artaud believed that language was an entirely insufficient means to express trauma. Accordingly, he felt that words should be stripped of meaning and chosen for their phonic elements. According to scholar Robert Vork, speech on the theater of cruelty's stage is reduced to inarticulate sound, cries, and gibbering screams, no longer inviting a subject being, but seeking to preclude its very existence. Somewhat paradoxically, Artaud claimed that his characters are able to express things that others are unable to say. Vork claims Artaud seems to be suggesting that his play reveals emotions and experiences that we all attempt to prescribe and are unwilling to acknowledge, but which nevertheless occur. Um, so we, I think we can understand that, first of all, in uh, Lacanian terms, as this is the real. It is precisely that which is not symbolic. Um, and then in uh, Deleuze Guattarian terms, we can, I mean, they, they're very explicit about the body without organs expressing itself in grunts and cries and an inarticulate scream. It is, it is not, yeah, it's as Jack of Hearts says, um, the chat, it's pre-verbal language. It's expressive, but it's not fixed down to any, um, any one territoriality, any one set of disjunction. Yeah, I was reading. I was, I was reading the the Derrida essay on this, and uh, you know, it's kind of a it's an anti-logocentric, I guess one could say, uh, 
approach because that's sort of what I, that's what I was thinking is what I had to tell myself when I was looking at the, the fragment of the language is like I, I can't look at this from a logocentric perspective of what does it mean you know it's like it's it's not so simple can I also which, draw attention which, to the there's a passage that is also in the sort of infinity section and the fart section where he he again uses the idea of he's talking about uh nothingness but also the explosive uh affirmation so somewhere here he says the need to abolish the idea the idea and its myth and to enthrone in its place the thundering manifestation of this explosive necessity to dilate the body of my internal night the internal nothingness of myself which is night nothingness thoughtlessness but which is explosive affirmation that there's something to make room for my body like he goes on a lot in this in this area about consciousness being something that is not articulable and impossible to sort of reduce to to words i kind of saw that beginning as subconsciously kind of setting you up for that and like you were saying getting frustrated by the fact that there's this little marginal thing on the margins that's there that you just can't process you, you can't rationalize it right like with logos it's not going to lend itself to being parsed in that manner right but it, it it nonetheless is part of an order and it, it fulminates, right? So the kind of to your, to, to expand on what you're saying, when we're reading um, this construction, right? This ordering of language, this play, uh, part of what I think it's doing is um, uh, it's arranged to a hair similar to like a trace of a body. And it's, it's, I don't. I hate to use the word rebelling because I think it might give the wrong connotation in a sense. But it it's actively rebelling against something, right? And whatever that something is, I think moves. Whether it's capitalism, whether it's our idea of being as fixed by organs. That is to say, we understand ourselves not as um, anything but biological. Uh, and that is to say, too, where he uh, to, to build off Park Bench's point, it's the idea of man that we're trying to kind of um, decimate here, right? If the idea of man is the sun, then we've got to get rid of it because we can't see the self that is night. I like the way yeah, you put that. There's a there's even a connection to the kind of. Um, I thought of when I was reading the section where he talks about yeah the 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 self that is that is nothing but is also you know explosively uh, affirmative or or creative. I thought of the the creative nothing in in uh, Max Stirner, you know it's and it's also there. There's a similar uh, conception there of like destroying the concept of of man or universal man um, in favor of a of a different kind of subjectivity. I've been wanting to read Sterner because I, everything I've heard secondhand seems really uh, relevant to this whole realm of thought. Yeah, he's definitely seen as a, as a prefigurer, I think, to a lot of this type of stuff. And that's why I, I really thought that idea of the creative nothing is, is, is a powerful sort of concept that even appears in, I guess, oh, not exactly. Hello? 
Oh no, I was there. I just I, I kind of I kind of went on a train of thought that I realized was not really exactly relevant. <laughs> Uh, so let's, uh, Andrew's not here to ask his questions. Let's ask a question. Whose voice spoke that opening prelude thing? I, I don't think it was the, the protagonist. I don't think it was the, the voice of Arto himself. I, I think that, um, this is, it may be juxtaposed against all this nonsense precisely because it is, those sensible words are the fulminating order imposed upon the inarticulable uh, creative nothing, um, which Arto is here is here um, promoting. That that's my interpretation that's of the voices at play here. I mean, he does say at one point in that initial narrative, "My son," which almost sounds like it's like some paternal figure recounting things to you know, you know, a lesser you know, apprentice or their actual son in some way. So I, I agree. I don't think I'm. So I, yeah, I, I read the uh, my son bit as another change of voice, or or kind of like a sarcastic change of voice, maybe. If this helps too, when we when we go to see theater, we're very used to the idea that one person is going to play one character, and right. So in this play, we have our toe. Um, we have our toe, the performer. We have our toe, the character. And then I think we have our toe, or at least the character, the narrator, if you will, constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it would be a mistake to like identify a list of characters in this play. There's more just a nomadic wandering of perspectives. Yes, a continuity, or or if you if you like a flow. Do we have anything more to say about uh, everything up to the pursuit of fecality? Yeah, just a quick point. I, I dropped in the chat um, a piece of music that's in part inspired by Artaud um, and that works with preverbal language. In fact, this one's exclusively preverbal. So if, I think this is kind of useful to see um, sort of the, the broader implications of what Artaud's saying, and also looking at um, how it would actually operate, right, in a musical setting, uh, how preverbal language can kind of um, relate with us. It's called uh, Litany Five by Moonchild. Yeah, and if uh, you know for, the significance uh, of Heliogabalus, that keeps coming up, and I think it came up in the Deleuze as well. Heliogabalus, I, w- I want to say, was a like Roman emperor who was. Uh, not that this concept or social position quite existed at the time, but trans. Yeah, I, that's that's about all I know. It's um, it's imp- you're right. He's sort of trans, uh, or whatever you want to call uh, Helio Gabalis. I'm not sure where he gets placed, but yeah, he does engage in cross dressing. Um, there's a clear like bisexuality with um. Iliogabalus, there's an intense sense of cruelty. Um, arguably, Iliogabalus is capable of making um, Caligula look sane. But uh, to make the final point, uh, Artaud actually writes a, a work on Iliogabalus. So there's 
Heliogabalus, the historical figure. And then there's Heliogabalus as our toe presents him as a character. And I, I believe where uh, Deleuze and Guattari invoked him was um, as an effect when they were talking about the names of history. Um, but for okay. anyone listening to the recording later, the, the title of this video is Zorn at 60, Mike Patton, Six Litanies for Heliogabalus Litany 4. So search that, it should turn up. What were you saying, Park Bench? I don't know if I was saying anything. Oh, okay then. I mean, we were discussing the voice of the initial section. Um, I was saying that it sounded like there was a paternal voice of some kind that was weaving in there. But when he says, we have more than one enemy lying in wait for us, my son. Um, but you were saying that you thought not. Yeah, and, and it's that we the born capitalists part that makes me feel like that is a change in voice. Like he's identifying who the who the I is, who the we is, as if this is something that needs to be reestablished. I, I think it's kind of uh, parroting what he might imagine the 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 logic of the American machine to say. Yeah, and we, we sort of have to wonder here, right? Um, it seems like we're being, we, as he's invoking it here, are kind of outside the, um, the seminal test. So there's a sense of um, us not being purely manufactured. But we're also, uh, we're still we the boring capitalists. We're not we the, uh, we the soldiers here, right? One of the interesting things is um we, I think we can safely say this is intended for a French audience. So even though he's critiquing capitalism, um, he's also pointing out that we're, we're born as capitalists. Hmm. Which is a bitter pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah, that, that phrase, born capitalist. Can we say it again? Could you say the bitter pill? Oh, sorry, I missed it. <laughs> I, I just uh, remarked that it's a bitter pill to swallow that we're born as capitalists. I, I think, I see what, I think uh, what he's getting at there is this idea that um, we're, you know, we're, we're Americans. We're like, that's just how our nation is, right? Like, um, it's not we're sadly born as capitalists. It's like, no, you were born to be a capitalist. Damn it. it it's... Um, it's a patriotic affirmation. It, it depends, though, because you're taking the we to be from an American-centric point of view, which might I, I think you can do. But if you take it from the point of view of his audience, right, the French, um, it's a little bit different then. Yeah, but I, I don't think that sentence makes sense unless he's kind of speaking from the standpoint of the Americans he's criticizing. Americans aren't the only ones who criticize it as well. Well, no, but he, he is explicitly talking about Americans in this opening section. 
what is the date that this text came out? Uh, November 1947 aired February, well, set to it air in air. 1948 February. I think it aired. It like, was censored. Was it 78 it finally went on the air? So it was written in the four, 1948, 1947. So just after the end of World War II. Right. It's obvious by capitalist, he doesn't mean owner of capital. I'm pretty sure it's just a statement on the ideological infrastructure of society as in existing in the capitalist mode of production. Yeah, particularly because in that same sentence, he juxtaposes, you know, we the capitalists against Stalin's Russia. It, it's really more a statement about nation and affiliation than about relation to the means of production. But it also blurs the lines, right? Stalin, we both have armies here. But I think it's kind of interesting. America's creating soldiers. Uh, Russia has armed men. I don't know if I saw that as a contrast. I thought that was more just a statement of, of parody between the sides. A parody of force, but difference of identity. A blurring of the lines, as I take it. You know, Stalin's Russia is identified as one of, as being among the enemies of we, the born capitalists. I, I think there's a differentiation. Agreed, but uh, there's a differentiation, but there's also the, both sides are building armies. Yes. Which is why it's, there's so, kind of blurring of the lines. Yeah, and I, I, again, that's another reason I think this is kind of a uh, sarcastic change of voice where he's kind of showing that maybe the, these enemies have more in common than they, than they pretend to. I suppose Pretty also we could connect like this paranoia. to the we, we could also connect this to the later section now that I think of it, that, uh, you know, he has that whole dis discussion of the atoms and the, you know, the nuclear weapons of the two sides mm -hmm. where he says, laugh if you like, what has been called microbes is God. And do you know what the Americans and the Russians use to make their atoms? They make them with the microbes of God. And he kind of, he riffs on this theme a little bit here, but there is something about the mutually assured destruction <laughs> aspect yeah, that he's yeah. definitely here. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, let's see if we can link the first section back with that last one when we get to the last. But for now, let's move on to the pursuit of fecality. We're less than halfway through and we've been at this for an hour. Well, it starts with a great statement where it smells of shit, it smells of being. I'm in for it. Yeah, I, so the pursuit of fecality is my favorite section, which is why part of why several times now I've been like, can we move on to it, please? <laughs> I'm, I'm ignorant. I'd, I'd love to move on. Uh, but yeah, there where it smells of shit, it smells of being. Um, so I, I guess the first question to ask is what does he mean by being? This is obviously a word that's been used to mean many things, many times, many points in history. It's a form of existence. It's, it's more than just existing, because just below there, he says, to exist, one only need to let oneself be. But to live, one must be someone. 
um, I feel that that's connected because he, the, the moment of coming into being, because he talks about the, the, the man being stuck. Why, is, why does that have to be beyond existence? That can just be existence as a whole. I'm going to try and find a quote. I'll give me a second. I'll try and find the part where I'm referring to. And this is from the author's perspective, or are you making a claim? Uh, maybe both, but I'll find the part where I'm referring to. Give me a moment. Gotcha. If it helps, I don't see him as saying it's beyond. I, I see him as saying they're kind of, they're interwoven, right? There's a parallelism going on there. And either way, it's, whether it's all a part of it's, it's a part it's of the whole of existence. Yeah, well, yeah, so to exist, one need only let oneself. So being is sufficient to exist. It is the result of, to exist is the result of being. Within the context of philosophical materialism, what else could it mean? Well, are we using a context of philosophical materialism to understand this? I, like I said, I'm ignorant. I'm, I'd love to be illuminated, but if that was the context, then that's what I would expect it to mean. I, I think um, if if we're going to read Artaud as a materialist, it would be have to be a very strange materialist, much like Deleuze and Guattari, where experience so then, is given so a materiality. Then you claim you're giving me the author's perspective. I think uh, giving the author's perspective is very difficult, and that's part of what we're trying to figure out. Yeah, you're doing a great job. I like hearing <laughs> you guys. But I have to ask questions or else I'm worthless. That's fair. <laughs> I, I think they're making a claim in terms of interpretation. I don't think they're venturing to I see what you're saying. the author's perspective just yet. Because I'd hate to pin down Artaud is a philosophical materialist, right? Like, yeah. I don't think he's talking Sartre here. Well, speaking of philosophical materialism, actually, the, the first, the kind of lens that I thought of has come to mind, because I was really kind of grappling with the idea of what it means for shit and being to be interwoven. Um, and I kind of thought of, and this is a little imprecise, but I, I, I thought of, you know, the... Uh, the marks of the 1844 manuscripts mm. um, and the idea of species being um, this idea that, you know, for the human essence or the species being is, is uh, being as, you know, production as, as taking something of nature and, and transforming it into something else through conscious activity. Um, and I sort of, and it's not exactly conscious, but if you think about it, like shit is essentially the first form of that. It's the first production, you know, you, you take something from nature, something like food, you ingest it, and it it's transformed into something else. It's not, as, uh, but of course, it's, it's a little imprecise because it's not a conscious activity like Marx was talking about necessarily, but, um, no, but it, then, it reminded me of that. No, that's, a, that's a really good point, I think, especially because we can use Deleuze and Guattari to explicitly connect um, this kind of biotic production with... with uh, industrial production with and I wouldn't production. I would and I, I agree that's a really good point but I still wouldn't think of shit as like the beginning but it's still a really good point Freud would and he, that, does that sort of say, he does sort of say right beneath that first section which is I, I was looking for it I couldn't find it is because in order not to make caca he would have to had to consent not to 
but he could not make up his mind to lose being, that is to die alive. And I feel there's something, again, we're reading this on the server, talking about anti-Oedipus and to lose and all this stuff. Like there's a, there's a sort of primordial element of that whole discussion of breaks and, and disjunctions mm-hmm. that we've been talking about of like, uh, you know, the, where Deleuze and Guattari say the penis interrupts the semen and the, the mouth interrupts the, the milk and the, the anus interrupts the shit of like, if you think about it, if you were to try to walk it through logically, not actually logically, but just to you know, formally follow what he's saying, you know, if, if the human weren't to not close off that, that sphincter to allow the shit to pass through or to be cut off, you know, but the, the flows and the forces of whatever it is, they're just going to be endlessly surging within this being. And it would be a kind of existence that we wouldn't understand or be able to process in any way. So there's some kind of like, it says we couldn't make up our mind to lose being and die alive in some way. And so then right under that, he says something, something tempting for man in being, and it's precisely shit, basically, that there's something about these, I guess the way we've been talking about it, the way I would understand it is these, everything that is a productive, you know, desiring production produces, but it's not just this endless sort of upward process. It produces and inherently there's anti-production that comes with that is all these breaks and flows. There's the breaks in the flows that make other things possible. And without that, you don't have this thing that we understand as being or man, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, and that's almost like, well, obviously like with the, with the example of shit, you know, the, the food as it is transformed into shit, it loses energy and that energy is transformed into other things, other flows within the body. It's also the sort of Bataille idea of, you know, uh, energy is expended and then, you know, you have the waste that comes from that. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm kind of thinking of it from the perspective of, which I think is compatible maybe in different ways with both the ideas of the early Marx and also with the sort of the Luzogatarian ideas and anti-Oedipus of basically being as production and also, you know, with that anti-production. Right, and the... Uh, notion of shit is just a way of facilitating existence, the whole of existence. Yeah, it's the it's the primordial example of that of that production. So that's why you know wherever it smells of being, it smells of shit, or vice versa. Yeah, you, because I, I, because that's the because it would smell as the whole of existence. Right. Yeah, well, it's also true. Hey, I'm I'm kind of new here. I'd like to ask some questions verbally, but I don't want to sidetrack your wonderful conversation here. Uh, can I ask a few questions here, or should I go somewhere else? Uh, this is fine. Is is this is this a is this a general channel? I'm not sure. Oh yeah, sorry. Th- sorry, the name of the channel is not like super uh, clear. That this is being used for the uh, Arto discussion. Specifically. So, should um, I just wait to ask my questions till later? Because I definitely don't want to derail this. Uh, if if you want to talk about uh, about the play, then absolutely ask the channel. Otherwise, um, yeah, maybe uh, put them in. Uh, well, I was just a lot of the things that I have to say about the play are from the perspective of philosophical materialism, and I don't know if that's really the point. It, like, if I should be saying such things if that's the point of the discussion, to critique it from a philosophical materialist point of view. I think for the most part, we're trying to um, interpret and, and critique could certainly be part of that, but it but isn't uh, the 
project. Maybe we could do it at the so end. So what's the plan of this channel? Is this not a critical theory channel? Like, uh, what what other reason do we have to, talk, have about to this? talk about this? Well, critique follows after. Yeah, critique. I see. Don't. I see. But see, this is me asking the fundamental questions of the channel. Because I'm new. I'm brand new. I think the idea, we've been having a main reading around anti-Oedipus. We've had all these side readings. So we're trying to understand this and also understand it in light of anti-Oedipus. So... I think maybe we just try to walk through what we see in the themes, try and piece out some of the ideas of what is trying to be said, and then maybe we can do a bit of critique at the end. And it seems to make sense to me. Understood completely. One more super one-sentence question, then I'll leave you alone. Uh, this is a socialist project, isn't it? I don't know. We have a clear uh, manifesto. No, this, no, this channel. Um. Probably most of us are socialists, but that's not necessarily like an essential part of what we're doing here. All right. Gotcha. Thanks for the answer. Certainly, uh, interest in Deleuze and Guattari is biased in the direction of, you know, socialists of one stripe or another. I, I won't derail any further. Thanks for answering my question, guys. Yep. No problem. Do you guys, where were we with the fecality section so we were talking about shit <laughs> so i i'm i'm kind of interpreting shit as as yes on the one hand it is literal shit but also just kind of in general it, it is representative of this notion of um that which is base that which is left over byproducts what it what is putrid and maybe not necessarily intended. It's kind of the, the detritus of existence. To be is to create this, uh, this surplus. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, and they also refer to anim like he goes on to talk about animals and stuff like that. So it's not even necessarily restricted to man. It's just that man so-called deals with it in a different way. Let me uh, pose a question, too. What does it mean? Right, so we talk about Dasein and Heidegger, and we uh, it's very difficult in philosophy to get away from the question of being. Uh, but what does it mean if we take being in the sense of smelling like shit? That we're, if we're going to seek out being, uh, we're going to first encounter it, perhaps, by um, its smell, which is that of shit. Sorry, was, was there a question there? Yes. What does it mean that if, we're, if we're, we're, where we smell shit, we find being? Or rather, where we find being, we smell shit. It's just a recognition of the entirety of existence as a whole. Like, you can't separate one from the, you can't set the, separate the part from the whole. Mm -hmm. and, and you can't separate, like, the product from the byproduct. It's not saying it's not saying like the entirety of existence is shit. It's just saying shit is existence, as is everything else. Yeah, and I, I, I'd say that like shit is a necessary part of existence. Like to to shit is to be in the sense that you can't be anything, you can't do anything, you can't exist without there being some effluvia, some some offshoot, some waste some crap lying around some, 
some mode right, of very, biology. Very battalion. Some yeah, we mode might even, of biological uh, function. Yeah, biological function, and, and I think even more broadly, we might bring in Bataille and equate it with the accursed share. I think you could definitely do that, but it's also right, he's still attacking this notion of defining yourself through, uh, uh, through organs, right? We can also consent not to shit. Yeah, which, which, which would be to, to die alive, which... Um, I, I would interpret that as kind of referring to a catatonic state where one is dissociated from one's own body. I think we might want to keep reading then because I, I think that's where he's... I don't know if it's... I agree it's catatonic, but it's definitely... Um, it's definitely different. Well, so reading Deleuze and Guattari back into it again, uh, there are kind of two ways that the uh, paranoiac machine functions. There's as this catatonic entity, uh, but then there's also as the, the tabula rasa, as, as Holland describes, the, the possibility opened up for other ways of being besides the organization that is imposed on the body. I think he's promoting the latter, but kind of recognizing the former as, as something else that that would be entailed um, by kind of completely refusing this being. Like, you don't necessarily need to have an anus, but you need to shit. Otherwise, you're not existing. Yeah, otherwise you're not existing, and you're just kind of disavowing all of existence. Which is why, which is why shitting is a piece of existence and a part of the whole. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's also, if you think about just everything we've read up to this point, like it, it does really much very evoke that all those discussion of desiring production and desiring machines and, you know, the binary synthesis and coupling and how, you know, production always graphs onto the product. Like there's no form of desiring production that does not leave a trace. There's always a mm-hmm. trace that's left behind. And like you said, Mal, like you call it detritus. Like there's always these things that we that are left behind and left over and, they then are mobilized for other purposes. And, you know, in our discussions, I've used like a million analogies to try and help myself understand it. But when we were talking about the body without organs and other things, like I thought about, you know, the, the idea of the human nail, like the, the dead cells, you know, that are left behind that end up building up this other thing that is this hard surface or, you know, the search engine example with the spider bots and all that stuff. Like I do see elements of that in this. Of there's, there's always the left behind aspect. But mm-hmm. Interestingly, if we go a bit just right below that, this is where I'm I'm losing it a little bit because at first I kind of I see where he's saying of you know to exist you only need to let well, oneself be, but to live you have to be someone and one must have a bone not to be afraid to show the bone and lose the me in the process and I kind of read that of like more he's kind of saying you know not be afraid to sort of denude and defang the this thing that you think of as the body and the, this thing that's beneath the surface the skeletal surface that we think of as like secondary or underneath that makes sense to me but then he kind of goes into this whole interesting like mythopoetic analogy thing of the you know man the early earth that's only iron and fire and man preferred the meat to the bones and then had to sacrifice his blood you know even under that in order to have his shit that is meat so like i guess both things being being like in order to have that there was 
I don't know that that part is getting it's I think it's connected somehow to his idea of the sun ritual and this because he mentions the idea of sacrifice there as well and I wonder if we could even read a bit of that kind of even though he's trying to defend them in a way there's this weird I don't know on any other word like orientalizing thing of like ah the sacrificing the Aztecan Indians and their sacrificial rituals. I'm I'm losing it a bit in all there. I wonder if anyone yeah. could. So as, as Jack of Hearts said, it might be time to begin moving on then in terms of reading the passage. Well, I, I oh, we there was I, there were two things I was gonna I thought of both kind of relate to that. One was just finishing up, I guess, kind of hammering the point of um, that idea that you know the, the the surplus that's left behind that that accursed share is is autonomized always it always you know takes on a thing of its own so you know like the 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 the, the, the you know the energy that's expelled from the sun you know the little bit of it that reaches the earth you know is able to generate all these other autonomous things all the life that takes place on earth or uh the 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 little bit of surplus labor that gets extracted in the production process becomes autonomized as capital or uh you know the even the sperm that's extracted from the, the little boy you know uh becomes autonomized as an army um and so that was just hammering that point but then also more in relation to what you just said and i guess kind of getting into the moving on thing or addressing this addressing this whole kind of passages i wrote down a bunch of terms that stuck out blood steel fire bones meat shit and these words all seem to kind of interplay in this contradictory and also complementary way and i wonder you know like if we could establish like what the relation of all these terms is to one another can you repeat the terms and i can write them down also i'll type them in chat yeah perfect perfect perfect. yeah so so um this stretch of text uh beginning right after roaring the word kaka and then going up to the uh nonsense it uh it seems to me that there's kind of an accelerated delirium, right? Like it makes less and less sense as you go on up to the point of not even being words anymore. And then immediately after that, suddenly it's completely lucid again. Um, and I, I, I don't know exactly what light that arc may shed on things, but it just jumped out at me. I'd love to know about either any existentialist or humanist contemporaries in uh that may have read this book or wrote reviews about it. Yeah, I, I don't know specifically anyone uh, responding to this work. I do know that uh, when it was first recorded, um, before it was aired, or before it was to be aired, they played it to a room full of intellectuals and artists and philosophers, and they were all like, oh my god, yes, you air this. Um, I don't know who was in that room, though. Right. I'd love to know, and I'd love to hear what they have to say, but I could also just make my own. Yeah, for for what it's worth, I think we want to be careful how many people we bring in to understand this text, right? We want to make sure that we're uh, giving our toes voice a chance to speak before we um, we bring in responses. So when we look at this Always. section... Right. Let me know if I'm ever speaking too much. Not at all. I, I don't think you're speaking too much. I think you are speaking um, over people a little bit. Yeah, it's hard to tell when people are done. A little. A little. 
We need a code. And word. I apologize greatly. You guys are great. I think our uh, code word for uh, over should be park bench. <laughs> should we have a safe word? Uh, I feel called out. In a loving way. It's completely my fault, but I understand what you're saying 100%. Yeah, to, to get back to the point, um, this is definitely an interesting section because there's a lot of interplay and a lot of movement. And so um, when we're looking at interpreting this right, we have the pursuit of fecality. So what we're about to, to read about is going to be um, this interest, this kind of, uh, uh, if you will, teleology toward, um, toward fecal matter, toward shitting, or, or toward an attribute of shittiness. Right. And so when, we, when we're comparing, because um, I would add to Shiny's list, I would add being an existence there or being existence in life. Mm -hmm. um, these symbols are definitely, they're working with each other and against each other. So, right, like the pursuit of fecality, there where it smells of shit, it smells of being. Man could just as well not have shat, not have opened the anal pouch, but he chose to shit as he would have chosen to live instead of consenting to live dead. Because in order not to make caca, he would have had to consent not to be, but he could not make up his mind to lose being, that is, to die alive. There is in being something particularly tempting for man, and this something is none other than caca. <laughs> I suppose then I'm supposed to make a preverbal sounds, but really, there's a lot going on just in that section that I think we want to begin to unpack. All of the words are very visceral, including existence and being. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about literal viscera. Exactly. But so is existence and being. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. Does anyone consciously shit? No. You don't tell yourself you need to shit? Well, I, uh, if I have to, I'll be like, okay, I'll go do it now. Or I could wait. So I guess in a sense. But your organs tell you. It's a signal. There's a, okay, I'll buy that. There's a signal. And then you have, I think what Arto is suggesting, a choice. I don't. It's not like I don't have to, and then I tell myself I need to. I get the signal, and I decide whether or not I do it. But always an essence of doing it. It's varying magnitudes, obviously. Can I park bench right now? <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, I think... Uh, I don't know if I completely agree that it's he's saying there's a choice. I think he's saying because it's sort of like what we were talking earlier about the catatonia thing, whether we agree with that or not, that that's what it is. It's sort of a playful thing of like he would have had to consent to die alive. That's not really something that you can consent to. So I think he's saying it's like this impossible dilemma, you know, this state being that is 
you know, everything we've talked about, like this extreme limit, you know? Yeah. And I think, um, to the extent it, it says he could just as well not have shat, not have opened the anal pouch. It's like, it's in the sense that you don't need to lean into this. You could just kind of, you know, stew in your waist and, and not like, not, not accept it, not embrace it. Um, but he chose to shit. He chose to go to the bathroom to, to actually like make a thing of it. Um, because the alternative is to, you know, lie in a hospital bed with a bedpan. And both that choice and the biological functions leading up to the signal, they're both the same thing as in they're both part of the whole of existence. Let, let me try and make this point without drawing too much conclu- um, off the conclusion. If we're talking about being a, there we go. If we're talking about being a body without organs, are we then consenting to live dead? I think it depends on in what way we're becoming a body without organs. Because for for Deleuze and Guattari, there are, there are kind of two ways this can happen. There's the absolute destratification, where you become this thing spinning off in the void, and that would be catatonia. Or there's this controlled destratification, where you're scraping off the animalcule, to use Artaud's phrase, and refusing the organization that is being imposed upon you and opening up the door to others. And, and in this way, we're seeing the organization forced upon you as the, the something biologically connected to, to shitting, to organs, and to, the, um, to a sense of being. So I, I think we could say that regardless of any organization, uh, you're going to shit. Um, it, you know, I, I said earlier, and I, I stand by this, you, you have to shit, but you don't need to have a name. And I, I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Like you, there's, there is the, the process of being as, as what DNG would call desiring production of which shitting is an example and a paradigmatic example. Um, and organization is secondary to The biological processes that lead to you having a shit, um, it's like when you have, when you immediately decide whether or not you do, the act of decision is still a biological process as well. How, how do you mean? Well, when you make a decision, you don't make it outside of your brain. It's still a biological process. And in a sense, you have control over that in the same sense you do as the control over getting a signal that you have to shit. I think Mel was um, kind of close to my interpretation when he said, and I don't know if I'm reading into what you said, my interpretation, but uh, I think you were on point when you said that he is not against this uh, kind of flow of shitting, right? But um, against this imposition of a certain organ, let's say, or a certain part of the body being strictly designated to this, uh, uh, to this function, right? Mm-hmm. And a very interesting point, I, I don't know how, because, because I just joined a few minutes ago, I don't know how much you touched upon this, but I hear um, you talking about death, 
in R2, right? And uh, in, other, <clears throat> in other works, right, uh, he says, and I quote, through dying, I finally achieved real immortality. Right? And for R2, I think that this, um, this process of death, right, as he says in what I've quoted, is actually achieving an immortality, right? To die simply isn't just um, a kind of end, right? Derrida actually touches upon this in, in his essay, Writing a Difference on Arto and the Theater of Cruelty, when he says that, quote, not to die in dying, not to let the thieving God divest him of his life, right? Maybe it's worth just revisiting some of the passages Derrida, <clears throat> Derrida in which Derrida talks about death and Arto's relationship to it. What work did you just allude to? I didn't catch that name. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, it's in the one Theater I quoted. Of something of cruelty. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, Derrida's essay for yeah, the yeah, okay. difference. It's titled "Theater of Cruelty and the Closure of Representation." Sorry. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the passage I quoted from from Arto, through dying, I finally achieved real immortality. Uh, I don't know from from what exactly that is. Well, I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but remember, this play ends with us going to the autopsy table. Um, right. But I think in this context, what what I, I and what I think you're starting to get at, Andrew, and I think what I'm trying to suggest is not is one that he's Arto is definitely rallying against the idea of biology dictating uh, being. And I think he's going so far as to say that that idea um, necessarily is tempted by shit. In what way? I mean, how tempted? He he writes, there is in being something particularly tempting for man, and the something is none other than caca, after which he roars. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, when we talk about new forms of subjectivity, I think that's one of the things we're thinking about. Is, um, I think the uh, the way our toe might express that is to say there's a, a living dead. Right. I think that. Yeah. And from what I read, I think that the way he pictures life, right, this uh, anti-representational, uh, anti-mimetic form of life, right, that he tried to achieve through his theater, more generally, is um, achieved through something which we would coin death, right? But what he calls this uh, radical lack of organization that is achieved through the body without organs. And uh, does Gautari actually get to this in um, one passage from A Thousand Plateaus that some of the admins like to come back to, right? Sometimes when they say that, when the doesn't got say, I mean, I mean uh, that the body without organs is not strictly opposed to the this notion of the organ, but actually the strict organization of them, right? And in this way, I think, when I, uh, <clears throat> when I say that for, for Arto, 
life is achieved through this kind of radical, through this radicality, right, that we call death. I think that, and the, my notion is taken from Derrida, of course, that this theater of cruelty, which uh, Arto represents in his work, right, is actually a theater of life in that way. Yeah. Well, there's that quote at the end of the play that you're kind of getting at, I think, when he says that when you made him a body without organs, you'll have delivered him from all his automatic reaction and restored to him his true freedom. So mm -hmm. there is something, yeah, about that death state that is a you know, return to maybe before when man chose the, he says, the infinity and the infinitesimal. But we can get to that when we get to that section. Mm -hmm. Right. And where are you at in, in the text? We are I in the pursuit of I didn't catch that. There was an echo. We are in the pursuit of fecality. We uh, mm -hmm. just got past Roaring Kaka. Okay. Okay. I've been discussing... We, we got into discussing uh, the part about bones and meat, and I, I'm still mm -hmm. not entirely sure what bones and meat are all about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me either. That's why I kind of raised that. As we move into it, I just want to say in reference to Park Bench, right? We're talking about people who eat without any sort of appetite and who are hungry, right? Part of the challenge of this piece is it's it's trying to move us or at least make us confront a notion of being uh, that is tied to the biological in one sense. I... I also thought of something, I guess, not, not to kind of, like you said, bring in so many figures with which to read this, but uh, I thought of kind of, because we're talking about the choice to shit or not to shit, it reminded me, of course, of, of Freud and, you know, you know the, the, the anal stage, you know, the process of potty training and all that, you know, prior to that point, you don't really choose to shit or not, you're, it's, it's, you're not, you know, you're, you're just compelled by whatever kind of biological signals, it's only after that stage that one can kind of consciously choose, you know, wh when one receives a signal, am I going to shit or am I going to wait, you know? Um, so That's there's... actually a really strong point. And I think if there is one figure that we can aptly read into this as probable background, it is Freud. Uh, the, the man was subject to a lot of psychiatric treatment. Right. And, and, and I mean, really, I guess you could say, like, it's only after that point of kind of developing a subjectivity through those stages, you know, before mm -hmm. before that, you're kind of just the undifferentiated consciousness. You don't have any like it's only after the process of the different stages and the yeah, differentiation and, you know, you, you kind of constitute a self. Um, it's only after that point that one can really be said to be to 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 be someone. Um, and, and that, of course, is intimately tied to the ability to, to choose whether or not to shit. Right, yeah, so the, the rendering of shitting as a choice is what makes it the, the, um, the condition for being. Right. But, Do you um, think it would also be connected to... Do you think it would be connected to an idea, you know, would he be, this is just a question, do you think he'd be connected to him 
critiquing the idea that that actually represents any kind of real subjectivity, you know, that, that, that is also a sort of false, there's a falsity to that. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely privy to that sort of interpretation. Yeah, I think he's drawing upon it, making some positive use of it, but notice he doesn't really talk much about the anus here. He talks about the anal pouch, but, um, Mostly he's just talking about shit as a process of, to read it in a Deleuze-Guitarian way, as a process of production. Well, what's interesting to me is your referral to the word being, and I'm not sure um, in what way you're using it, so maybe you can elaborate, right? Because one can um, easily think of this being that you reference a kind, as a kind of a philosophical notion of it. So what do you mean when you say being? Maybe. This is a good question, I feel, to, to differentiate and to maybe be certain about what Otto is talking about when he talks about life. Right. Yeah, earlier in the discussion, I don't know if we necessarily agreed on this, but we were talking about, you know, the connection between being and shit. And I sort of came to the conclusion that, uh, that you know, it's like being as production, as, 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 as creation or as a, yeah basically be, being as production being as as creation and also correspondingly anti-production that that kind of rubs up against it i think part of the trick too is that i think he is invoking a philosophical um uh, a philosophical um note if you will but he's also differentiating being in terms of existing and living, right? So um, as we're moving here, and right, we're, we're trying to unwrap, unfurl being from shit, being from existence, being from living. Uh, it might come with us that we might, we have to read these nets, uh, two, two or three stanza. I think that'll get at the heart of your question a little bit deeper, Andrew. Right, so, do it. You're good reader. So, uh, Begum asked a question earlier that I, I didn't want to lose sight of that might help us interpret. Uh, Begum asked, uh, to exist versus to live, losing the meat in order to live, does it have any relation to the ritual? And this section does occur immediately after the ritual. It does seem to imply that there should be some connection. See, I, I kind of see it more in terms of the animals eating and that that act of consumption is not a rape. Right, yeah. And that's, that's how I've always read it, that um, after this nonsense uh, section... At this point, man withdrew and fled, then the animals ate him. It was not a rape. He lent himself to the obscene meal. That always read to me as a continuation of the ritual. But also the becoming of shit. And also I feel not only a continuation of the ritual, but also I read it as a continuation of the natural process, right? Of uh, how beings... Uh, I, I use this word here in a purely biological sense, living beings in nature, you know, work and then 
uh, live one off from the other by eating themselves, etc. So then this, uh, that would make the pursuit of fecality a, um, a tangent that we should expect to illuminate the ritual at this minute. I, I think in part it gives us kind of what the ritual is critiquing, which is this the, the very pursuit of fecality. Is it critiquing it? I, I think it's celebrating it. I think, think it's, I think it's critiquing a notion of it then to be more specific. Go ahead, Park Bench. Well, there's two things. I mean, I think as we're going through this section, there's an interesting phrase uh, right before the nonsense where he says, uh, where there was only blood and a junkyard of bones and where there was no being to win, but there was only life to lose, which that's, uh, and again, where we're trying to define what did he mean by being in life. That one I'm, I'm struggling with a little bit. But I also wonder, just the section that you guys just referred to about the animals eating and stuff. Do, so it's, I, can, I can see how it could be connected to the ritual. Do you see it as kind of maybe Arto talking in the third person again here? When he kind, of, he kind of says it like happened. You know, like man withdrew and fled. The animals ate him. He lent himself to the obscene meal. He relished it to act like an animal, learn to, you know, himself to act like an animal and all that. Does that, do you, could, do, could you read that in like the, the consummation of the ritual and him coming off the peyote or something? I don't think he's consumed peyote to perform the ritual, right? Um, I don't think for, I don't think we're supposed to take the narrators under, um, under the influence of anything here. If he is delirious, he's delirious the whole time, whether or not he's high. Right, in virtue of connection to real nature. Mm -hmm. uh, peyote is just a way of showing that connection. Sure, I guess we were just saying earlier that there's aspects of, you know, Arto's own experience that are woven into this. Like we talked about him coming off of heroin right around this time, and that he did apparently participate in some form in this ritual. So I just wonder if, if that you know if he's weaving that in there, but that's a secondary thing anyway. Yeah, I just noticed something in the in the phrasing after the nonsense stanza. At this point, man withdrew and threat and fled. Not a man, not the man, but man as a as a collective, as a as an abstract. As an idea. Right. And and I feel also that it's kind of an abstract, right? Maybe a general notion, right? So, so at what point exactly is man withdrawing and fleeing, and from what? We might, um, so I think we left off with the roaring. Do we want to do a closer reading of these three stanzas after the roaring? Yeah, we keep dipping into it, but then jumping right back out to shit. Let's, let's look closer at bones and meat. Uh... Anybody want to volunteer to read uh, the three stanza after Roaring? Mm, yeah, I can do that. I mean, are you talking about to exist and then? Uh, to exist, to exist. Two right. okay. Yeah. Sure. So tell me when to stop. He says, to exist, one need only let oneself be. But to live, one must be someone. To be someone, one must have a bone not to be afraid to show up the bone, 
and to lose the meat in the process. Man has always preferred meat to the earth of bones, because there was only earth and wood of bone, and he had to earn his meat. There was only iron and fire and no shit, and man was afraid of losing shit, or rather he desired shit, and for this sacrificed blood. In order to have shit, that is meat, where there was only blood and the junkyard of bones, and where there was no being to win, but where there was only life to lose. At this point, man withdrew and fled. Yeah, so, um, and, and right after life to lose, uh, there's that whole section of right. nonsense, which is meant to have some emotional effect on us. Um, but yeah, so things that, that things that jump out at me, um, he's equating shit with meat in that third stanza there. So that kind of can potentially give us an interpretive lens for other references to meat. He also there's equates, a dichotomy here, right? Yeah, between bones and meat. Right, and between the the shit and blood. Mm-hmm. And he he also equates equates earth and bones. And the other place we've seen earth is in the ritual as kind of the um, literal ground for it. And uh, he talks about eating peyote off the earth. It seems to Earth seems to work for him as um, a connection to kind of natural being. To bones, right? Mm-hmm. So then bones would similarly maybe be this kind of essential, natural, maybe libidinal being? So, so it turns out I did a little bit of translating. Uh, this is not entirely nonsense. Uh, it's actually a Southeast East African language. It's called Chichua or Chua. Maybe uh, it, it didn't manage to translate it all, but uh, the first line, Oreshe Modo, means uh, name it, apparently. And then Taudari is say the ceiling and do padera coco do a special coco something i'm not sure but definitely there's something behind this i think i'm not so sure there's something behind it it's so google translate will do its best to identify a language depending on how you slice it up it's going to identify a different language if you take just that first line o reche moto it thinks it's Bengali and translates it as he sells alcohol. Oh, yeah. That's kind of... Okay. Deep I appreciate that investigation, though. I, I'm glad you did that. Thank you. But it's kind of funny. I mean, I don't know. It sounds so much like language, that particular section. Exactly. And actually, this uh, etymology that I wrongly identified, like Southeast East Africa... Uh, from my ethnocentric perspective, it okay. kind of fits in the, the whole section, right? Well, and I love I love Mal's point, right? We're seeing something, we're seeing a language without the language, in a sense, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. a kind of yeah. body without organs, if you will, in a, in a different sense. We're seeing the bones. This particular snippet looks so much like real language that we desperately want it to have. 
Um, but uh, I, yeah. think, I think based on what we know of our toe, we should expect that it is, in fact, nonsense. Well, and we wanted to have meaning under the English language, right? Under the English body, right? Um, I think what's really critical here is that he's showing us, um, like I say, kind of a language without its organs. Something that's affecting us in a different way than we're used to reading a language. Our toe is almost kind of tempting us or our logocentric uh, disposition to kind of grasp at a language but where, where there really isn't one because it's, it's so like kind of it's so like almost a language and yet not this sort of like ethereal thing. Go ahead. It's an aside, but although ethnocentric obviously has very negative connotations, when used objectively in the form that it was previously used, I don't remember who it was. I think it was Jack of whoever did the translation for us. Um, I think that was a good um, thought. I don't know. I agree with that. He's tempting us to use our own ethnocentric points of view to enter to interpret it but there's nothing really there to find oh yeah that was, that was me who said that that's uh shiny cool cool yeah i'm i'm new still so i'm kelly by the way hi kelly hi mel yeah you don't need to read the rest of my name most people don't anyway <laughs> I couldn't if I wanted to. That's why most people don't. Um, so Shiny laid out kind of a summary of the equivalencies and relationships chat. I'll, I'm going to read that out because I think it's helpful. Shit equals being and shit equals meat, but meat and shit are contra bone, at least insofar as man desires one over the other. But to be someone, one must have a bone. So there is a contradiction at the heart of being. And actually this this framing makes it sound very Lacanian, a contradiction at the heart of being. Right. Sounds very 70s Lacan to me. Ooh, I guess I'm, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm reading something into it, perhaps. I think it's very likely that he's been examined by Lacanian and had this narrative thrust upon him. So I, I, we shouldn't be surprised to find it. That'd be too early for that, no? Would it? Oh, yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, no, Lacan had... Yeah, right. Lacan's career was just starting at this point. You're right. But I, mean, I do so think much. kind of what I was connected to what I was saying earlier that, um, yeah, I, I like this initial passage. That's where I'm still grounded in what he's saying when he says one must be someone to be someone, one must have a bone and not be afraid to show the bone and to lose the meat in the process. Like, it almost gives me an image of like, you know, an injury of like bone popping through the flesh which is obviously usually a quite unsettling image, but he's kind of saying, no, that's like, that's when you're really starting to get to it, to the heart of it. That's when you're finally allowing yourself not to be but my confined question, by this my question thing. Is, if we've identified this um, kind of bone structure at the other end of the dichotomy, right? Opposed to me and the shit and being, right? Uh, as Shiny did in the chat. Um, why is it so important to show this bone? Why is it? I, I think part of it is, you know, again, we're dealing with real nature versus fake nature. Um, we're dealing with the real nature of the earth versus um, 
uh, I think in a sense, like, um, right, artificial insemination, artificial production, artificial creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're looking at this, like, I'm, I'm going to skip the first stanza to take the question. Uh, man has always preferred meat, right? So preference of meat, we're back to preference of shit. Right, a guiding desire, a, a guiding object of desire. Uh, man has always preferred meat to the earth of bones. Uh, as Mal pointed out, right, we're talking about earth in terms of that as sort of the real nature. That's our, that's where we're finding it. Uh, so man has always preferred meat to the earth of the bones, because there was only earth and wood of bone, and he had to earn his meat. There was only iron and fire and no shit. And man was afraid of losing shit, or rather he desired shit, and for this sacrificed blood. Am I the only, am I wrong in seeing a kind of biblical element in that? Could be. What this makes me think uh, is one of our discussions. I mean, especially the part when they, when Arto says that, the man was afraid to lose shit, right? The, this makes me think of one of the examples posed by Brooks, right, about uh, his own child, right? And uh, I think that the, the example went along the lines of when, when he, when the child first saw his uh, his excrement, right? He was uh, so afraid of the parents throwing it out, right? Because it was something he created. So maybe it can be looked at, at this way as well. As yeah. shit being a kind of uh, he he desired shit, and it, if we're following the shit meat equivalents, uh, there was a fear of losing the meat, um, which which is the necessary price one must be willing to pay in order to show the bone, in order to show one's essential nature. Mm-hmm. So I, I think bone can be related roughly to the id, to kind of libidinal being. It's kind of um, before any socialization, before any configuration, it is that which sits at the root. And in order to expose this, we need to be willing to give up what is built up atop of it, which is meat and the ego and superego. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid to take our toe as a psychoanalysis, but I think you're on, on point in saying that he's trying to give up, or rather he's trying to get at a notion of uh, being, if you will, a notion of living um, that isn't defined by the preference of meat and shit, but returns to the basic, um, the basic element, if you will, or the basic um, underlying element of bones. Yeah, and to be clear, I'm not, I, I wouldn't want to reduce this to a Freudian framework, but I, I think both uh, conceptual apparatuses are kind of pointing at a common thing, which is something at the root of personal being that is buried under something else. Right, well, if we, if we think about the body without organs, you know, bone or the skeletal structure is, is below or before the organs. Yeah, so then uh, shit um, being identified as a process of desiring production um, 
is is something that uh, we have to be willing to face the fear of losing, because we're seeing it's equivalent to meat, um, in order to... See, now I'm getting confused. Oh, wait, no, that's, no, that's... That, that's really good, because, um, you know, it, we can't be afraid to lose shit. We have to be able... We can't withhold it. We have to be able to excrete it. Um, just in the way that, you yeah. know, with, we can accumulate the accursed share. We have to kind of let it be, uh, we have to allow it to be wasted. Yeah, I, I, I think in order to properly experience, and I'm just going to use the D&G terminology, in order to properly experience desiring production, we need to cope with the fear of losing it because, um, because that's bound up in, in, in the meat that's built atop of it. That's bound up in the, uh, the way that we're organized, the way we're territorialized. We need to be willing to give that up because we have mistaken it for the process itself that sits beneath. Well, this is, this is actually really illuminating the whole passage, actually, for me. Like, I really wasn't getting it before, but now it's, now it's I think, starting to kind of click when I think of it through these terms. Well, remember, Do you guys think killing well? the process... Go ahead, Park. No, you can say what you're going to say. No, that was my only point. Remember, we're killing the uh, the crosses. I was going to just say, I wonder if there's something interesting as well. When, when he says man has always, like you said, uh, Jack of Hearts, I think you pointed out the preferring aspect. When he says man has always preferred meat to the earth of bones. Because there's something that is inherently painful about the process of being, you know, and then and then having to kind of be edipalized and become this thinking, supposedly thinking autonomous subject. But then it's almost something that like we become attached to and preferring, even though he's I think he's, you know, saying that there is this a real nature and a thing that is truer to ourselves and truer to being and the universe and God and all of these things beneath it that is connected to the bone, the body without organs. We still continually prefer the meat we still go for the meat and you know this image of the body which i don't know that's interesting yeah i would point out though that um because we, we know what's coming right there's the want to be eaten so the the pain of at least i think it's hard to understand being eaten by an animal without a sense of pain um right the pain this is almost a sort of masochistic point, if you will, but um, I don't mean it quite that way. Um, the pain of going through the trouble of getting the meat, of having to earn the meat, right? A very you know basic capitalist idea, right? You've got to earn what you want, earning what you want uh, being the key here. Um, I think what he's trying to get us away from is this, this movement away from the bones toward the want of meat, um, toward the one of shit, which are leading to larger notions of being and, and subjectivity and uh, sort of a, a life and existence, right? These notions that have kind of uh, gone astray from uh, just the, the absolute presence of the earth or the bones, right? We're, we're going. Yeah, that's actually what I was, you, you said it better than I did. That was what I was trying to get at was that there's, a, there's something about desiring the thing that is a form of pain, uh, like you said, a masochism to preferring a kind of existence 
there's a familiarity to it, but that is, it's a painful process to kind of do it that way. And then he connects it later to his own body being this thing that is, you know, causes him so much suffering. Right. It's, it's the pain that comes with wanting to lack. Right. And I think that's important because it, I agree with Foucault that desire implies lack, but I think Deleuze and Guattari have a good point in contradistinction, but um, in a sort of synthetic way, I see it as a desire to lack here, to, to want this pain and to go through earning, which is painful, I think. That is a deep thought, and I think that might be a good place to leave it for today. We, um, we talked in the text chat about splitting into two sessions because we're about halfway through after two hours. That's probably for the best, yeah. Have a great time. So thank you. Tell your friends. Thank you, everyone, for participating in this session. This went way better than I could have ever hoped. Hopefully I didn't interrupt too much. Oh, no. This was incredible.